Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Liza Keller. In this episode, we assess China's engagement with multilateral institutions and global governance. The People's Republic of China's participation in global governance today is mostly taken for granted. Yet under the leadership of Mao Zedong during the mid-20th century, the Chinese Communist Party positioned China apart from many key Bretton Woods institutions, other than its permanent role on the United Nations Security Council. Following Deng Xiaoping's opening up and reforms in the 1980s, China began to engage with international institutions on a full spectrum of issues and became a full member of most key orgs by the early 2000s. The PRC has evolved as an active member of institutions that focus on everything from health and economics to climate change and security. In this podcast, we will explore China's transition from outsider to cautious observer to international insider. In addition, we'll also take a broader look at the state of international institutions China has joined and where the United States stands in a period of declining internationalism. Joining the show to talk about these issues are Dr. Scott Kennedy and Dr. Stuart Patrick. Dr. Scott Kennedy is Deputy Director of the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS and Director of our Project on Chinese Business and Political Economy. Scott is also the editor of the book, Global Governance in China, The Dragon's Learning Curve, which explores China's efforts to learn about, participate, and shape global governance. Dr. Stuart Patrick, James H. Binger Senior Fellow in Global Governance at the Council on Foreign Relations, is a leading expert on global governance. In addition to his work at CFR, Stewart is the author of several books on the international order, including most recently, The Sovereignty Wars, Reconciling America in the World. I'll turn it over now to the editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog, Jeffrey Bean, who sat down with Scott and Stewart. Good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia Policy blog and producer of this podcast. Our topic today is China's engagement with international multilateral institutions and global governance. Joining the pod to shed light on this issue are Dr. Scott Kennedy, Deputy Director of the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS and editor of the book, Global Governance in China, The Dragon's Learning Curve. Scott, welcome back to the pod. Thank you. Happy to be here. Also joining us is a special guest, Dr. Stuart Patrick, who's the James H. Binger Senior Fellow in Global Governance and Director of the International Institutions and Global Governance Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Stuart is also the author of the book, The Sovereignty Wars, Reconciling America with the World which, as the title implies, focuses on the U.S. struggle to balance international responsibilities, sovereignty, and its hegemonic status. Stuart Patrick, welcome to Kajit Asia. Super to be here. So as we tackle this topic of China's engagement with international multilateral institutions, I want to first take a step back and look at this from the historical perspective. Today, we take it for granted that the People's Republic of China is deeply involved in many international institutions and organizations like the United Nations, the WTO, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, and on and on and on. That was not always the case. What are some of the key signposts, Scott, over the last 30 years as you evaluate China's integration into and engagement with international institutions? And are there any broad takeaways that stand out? Excellent place to begin. In uh, the Mao era, from the late 40s to the mid-70s, uh, when Mao Zedong was in charge, and uh, China was outside this uh, global governance institutions. It was part of the Soviet bloc, if you want to say that. It was not a member of the liberal international order that the U.S. and Europe ha- had built. It was a bomb thrower, flamethrower onto that order. But beginning in the 70s, uh, as it moved toward... Uh, away from revolution as a goal and towards economic development as a goal. It wanted to reintegrate uh, with uh, 
Western institutions and uh, rejoined the UN in 1972, and then gradually began to rejoin uh, other international institutions and start to participate. I think the you know initial wave was when it rejoined uh, when it joined the IMF and the World Bank uh, in the early 80s, and in 1986 put forth its application to to join the the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which in 95 became the WTO. And so China spent probably the first two decades of the quote-unquote reform era uh, under Deng Xiaoping uh, rejoining these institutions and sitting in the back row uh, looking and learning and taking notes. Uh, I think the next big step came in 2001 when it was readmitted to the WTO and uh, became a full participant uh, in uh, international trade affairs and, and commercial affairs and uh, went from being a, a back row bencher, watcher, to being a regular participant. Uh, and I think that also applies, that timeline probably also applies, uh, uh, Stuart can correct me, on sort of human rights and particularly security concerns. And they probably joined and were more participatory on the security side than before economics, actually. But in any case, uh, the, the 2001 rejoining the IM, uh, the WTO was a key marker. I think from th that point forward, they started to gain uh, a little bit. They had a, a larger group of people who could participate and uh, felt a little more confidence and gradually contributed more and more to meetings. Uh, you had folks who weren't going just to uh, meetings and participating because they were senior and had gray hair, uh, but they were actual experts. Uh, and they, they spoke English and they could speak the language of the institutions. Um, and then I think probably the next shift is uh, in the wake of the global is around the time of the global financial crisis in 2008. The Chinese were in the center of the conversation over the Doha round at the WTO, and those discussions broke down. Uh, some blame the Chinese. I actually probably think uh, India probably deserves more of the blame for the breakdown of the Doha round in the summer of 2008. But that was really then you said any important conversation on global commercial affairs must include the Chinese. And from that point forward, uh, the Chinese have been at the center of the, the conversation in all types of economic affairs and have shown more activism and gained more and more leadership positions. I think the last uh, uh, transition is has been uh, their uh, beginning to to do uh, to uh, is beginning to provide public goods for the international system, not fully and widely, but in some areas the Chinese provide public goods to address commercial issues, security issues in their region, uh, but but beyond as well. Now that's something that they haven't fully internalized. They provide public goods that bear that where they don't have many costs to do so. But nevertheless, that's in, in addition. I think part of that is the creation of new institutions as well as addition to playing leadership and putting funding into institutions that already exist. So I think that's the, the arc of their participation. I think the last thing to mention on this is I think they are starting to think about sort of what should their imprimatur be on, on global institutions and governance. And I think that their idea of what that should be has evolved over time, and they're still coming to grips with it. Yeah, if I can just pick up on, um, I, I'm very much in agreement with um, with uh, Scott's uh, description of things. Um, and I, my, my first time I went to China was in um, the winter of 1985-86, and the notion that that, the, that the China would be speaking the language of global governance, you know, uh, more than 30 years on back then would have been just in, entirely implausible. And I think the f financial crisis, I think, um, is a really good 
<clears throat> marker as well because at least my impression as an outsider is that you know, it's since that time the Chinese have embraced the concept of global governance and there's also a sense that global governance isn't necessarily a simply a Western concept. I think, you, of course, you, you recall before, especially during the George W. Bush administration when Bob Zelik appealed to China to become in, in a sense a sort of a quote-unquote responsible stakeholder and my impression from the outside is that is that the Chinese were never particularly enamored of that because it suggested that the West and particularly the United States were the makers of the global rules and the Chinese had to be the takers and we sometimes feared the breakers of it. And it was a little reminiscent of, of the notion of the 19th century uh, uh, notion of the standard of civilization that if you wanted to join up, you had to come come in and be part of rules that the West was in a sense making at that that those time the imperial powers is your I mean a Garrett Gong who spent some time here at uh, at CSIS wrote about and I think now you've actually got a sense that uh, that China is actually can be imparting the definition of of some of those global governance rules. So as we look at our global institutions today, what is the health of them right now, Stuart? How are they doing uh, from a, from an objective perspective? Yeah, I, would, I guess I would say that they're it's it's not a pretty picture. Um, they're they're weak uh, yeah, often. They're strained. They've been slow to adapt uh, to a bunch of new issues. I think you know in the past, uh, up until the past few years, and certainly before the Trump administration, there was a sense that the challenge was really being posed by the rise of new powers and trying to integrate them into these institutions. And also, could we address new threats from terrorism to cyber insecurity to uh, to climate change? But what's interesting, what what I think is um is particularly the case now. And I'm sure we'll discuss this more. Is uh, is is that the threat of uh, to uh, international institutions is increasingly coming from the core of sort of Western or OECD nations that uh, that really were were the driving force of them. But let's take a look at a couple of the different areas. I mean, uh, Scott uh, mentioned trade and the and the Doha round and the Doha development round. You know, at the legislative aspect of what the WTO does, the the trading global trading system has largely been moribund since uh, since uh, 2001, really, with just a few side agreements on things like trade facilitation. And now the judicial aspect of it is actually becoming coming under assault with the Trump administration suggesting, hey. We may just ignore findings of the dispute resolution body. The nonproliferation regime similarly under great strain. Um, the you know NPT obviously nonproliferation treaty um, still remains the bedrock of um, of, of of that of, of the nonproliferation uh, regime, but uh, it's really uncertain now. Um, Partly because we're not we're unclear as what's where what the direction of the North Korea negotiations is going to go, but that also importantly because the United States pulled out under the Trump administration from or repudiated the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, on Iran's nuclear program. Uh, at the same time, you have non-nuclear weapons states uh, being dissatisfied with the pace of disarmament under Article Six uh, of the NPT, which commits nuclear weapon states to eventual uh, disarmament. Climate change. Most important multilateral agreement of arguably of uh, the 21st century was the Paris Climate Accords. But even if that had been, uh, even if that were fully implemented, it would probably only uh, get to about a third of the greenhouse gas emissions reductions that is needed to avoid this sort of catastrophic two uh, percent uh, uh, Celsius um, barrier that uh, that people talk about. And now, of course, the United States has pulled out. So, you know, that's 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 even before you get to certain issue areas where. Where we really see the international system laboring, just to mention two, um, one is the outer space, where there's obviously, uh, and this is very important for uh, for U.S.-China relations as well as U.S.-Russia relations, where 
there's an incredible congestion and competition uh, brewing in outer space. The, so this week, the president the president even announced the the creation of a, of a, a, a U.S. space force as sort of the sixth branch of the U.S. military, um, raising fears of militarization of outer space. You know, which still stuck with a, a 50-year-old tr- outer space treaty that hasn't been updated. Um, similar with cybersecurity, um, cyberspace. There's very few norms uh, to to deal with uh, what what counts aggressive measures, uh, how to deal with uh, cyber espionage of different sorts, uh, much less, of course, uh, free expression on the internet. So uh, it's a uh, it's not a, it's not a particularly pretty picture. The one caveat that I will make to that is I've largely been talking about formal international institutions. What we have seen is a proliferation of it's it's not a lack of global governance. It just tends to be much more informal. And so we've had, you know, we've had this proliferation of sort of ad hoc or informal arrangements um, through the health field to the creation of the G20 to to the creation of Shanghai Cooperation Organization, et cetera, all these parallel different mechanisms. So we live in a world of multi-multilateralism. The question is if the bedrock institutions that are often grounded in international law are not strong enough or capable enough or nimble enough, are we doing a good enough job? From your perspectives, what are the areas that China has learned, and I use air quotes, and internalized the most lessons from global governance, and where has the Chinese leadership pushed back, as they certainly have on, on certain issues? So that's a great question, and I think uh, different Chinese learn different rules and different lessons. Um, I think the, the first lesson that they learned uh, is, is that um, participating in global governance uh, means participating in, inst- in institutions beyond just government-to-government activity. And, that, and that's why they call it governance and not government. Uh, and so, so I think that broadened their horizons about how to participate internationally. And so that meant joining lots of institutions, learning the rules of those game, the rules of the games of those different institutions, and also, uh, as was alluded to, participating in non-state institutions uh, where uh, stakeholders, uh, companies, or NGOs are active participants in climate change. The Chinese have seen this huge hill that they've got to learn to, to get up in terms of getting Chinese NGOs to participate in, in climate change activities. So they would go to these meetings and see the delegations from Brazil and Europe and the United States have all of these different actors, and they go, well, where are our actors? And so I think they've learned that, uh, first of all, that participating in global governance is different than participating in, in government activity because the, uh, the fora and the participants are different. I think the other things uh, that, that, that they have learned um, is, is that um, the, the rules themselves matter. The written rules matter a lot, um, uh, but the unwritten rules matter equally. Uh, and that um, they see global governance institutions less like Perry Mason and more like L.A. Law. That shows you how outdated I am. Even if I went to Boston Legal, that would still be outdated. I'm trying to think, you know, I haven't watched TV in a while of a law show where the folks are figuring out how to, how to use the law to screw their opponent. Uh, so, so they see the, the rules of the game as basically containing the interests of those that made the rules and that those who, ha- those who have more power, more money, more knowledge, more social graces, diplomatic skill, do better. And so they invest a lot in learning the details of the written and the unwritten rules to promote their interests. 
to some extent, they obviously are trying to promote cooperation and problem solving, but they're also trying to promote their distinctive interests. And so in some ways, um, I think what we see is uh, the Chinese uh, were broadly integrating and liberalizing, uh, but at the same time, we're learning sort of WTO consistent or institution consistent ways to use the system to, for their interests. So, I mean, so the Chinese know now how to bring anti-dumping cases against others to protect domestic industry. They know how to make uh, the standards process work to their benefit. They know that in the proliferation regime that there's two classes of countries and that they can use certain of those rules uh, to get around some of the problems uh, that, that others face. Um, and so I think, I guess, so, and I guess the last thing that they've learned is, you know, at some point you, you need to put your imprimatur on the system. Uh, and I think we're seeing over the last f 10 years, especially the last five years, the Chinese saying, you know what, now we need to make, we've been integrating the system, now we need to get that system sort of adapt toward us. And so we're seeing, you know, China's effort to make the world safe for China, to make the world safe for industrial policy, make the world safe for state involvement in the internet, uh, for uh, China's military and things like that. So we're seeing that evolution of, of learning, some cases not great learning, uh, because also they look, sometimes people say, well, the Chinese look at hypocrisy from the West and then use that as an excuse to do something. I think actually they take that as a genuine point of, of, of learning that, uh, superpowers play by a different set of rules in terms of global governance uh, than everybody else. Um, and I think that's something that they've been socialized into, into believing. Um, but I, I do think that there is still this group of Chinese who would have a more liberal view of how to engage in these institutions and how, and how important they could be. But those folks aren't in power right now. We know who's in power in China. And they have this sort of much harder, sharper view of global governance institutions. You know, it's really remarkable. Um, we, to, reflecting back on, on the, the uh, scene that has been much discussed was when um, in, in January of uh, 2017, obviously, when um, Xi Jinping goes to um, Davos and presents himself as, in a sense, the great champion of globalization. And since then, as Chinese foreign minister has talked about uh, China as really being the sort of source of dynamism in global governance. Um, at the same time, as you have the Trump administration uh, taking, uh, in, in some ways, making war uh, against the world that America made uh, in, in, in many ways and, and retreating from it um, and, and being much more uh, much less interested in the sort of process of diplomacy and multilateral diplomacy, which uh, Scott suggested the Chinese have actually gotten pretty good at, um, and actually being much more, uh, particularly on the trade sphere, uh, much more um, results-oriented. Um, you know, the, the China uh, has become much more um, engaged, not just in the economic field, um, which uh, obviously Scott uh, mentioned before, but also, you know, in the peacekeeping field, it's really remarkable the degree to which, um, you know, China is by far uh, the leading contributor amongst the P5 to um, United Nations uh, peace operations uh, around the world, has been, you know, involved in, um, you know, probably a dozen uh, over the years, um, and in including uh, probably about seven or eight today. Um, and we mentioned the the climate change as well. There There is an area where uh, China has, uh, in a sense, um, filled a vacuum that's been left by um, by the United States and by by others. And I think there 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 appears to be a calculation that you know China can 
can get benefits also by leading in green energy technologies. And and it also that sometimes these um, these international rules and institutions actually help players within China while they're trying to negotiate with domestic partners in a sense or, 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 or trying to bargain and change things um, for the better in China. So there, for instance, when China looks around in its environment and, and so that, that in, in a sense – when the the leadership makes makes a decision that we're going to go heavy into um, into into being a much more green country, you can actually make those changes uh, in a way that sometimes it would be enviable from the perspective of the United States. Um, so a couple other reflections on um, on China and global governance. Um, I think that um, there. China seems particularly enamored when um, there are traditional um, aspects of multilateralism that focus on state sovereignty. Um, some of the biggest uh, controversies between the United States or the West and China, the West and Russia, have been on those where, in a sense, the revisionist power or the Western power is the Western power, where, for instance, the, I think of the, the doctrine of the responsibility to protect. In other words, um, some aspects of humanitarian intervention that when, that when a state can't protect its people from, um, from genocide or commits genocide against them, then the responsibility uh, devolves to the international community. Yeah, in some of those cases, China has actually taken refuge in in the actual rules of the United Nations, which privilege state sovereignty such to such a, a great extent. Um, and so you've seen China being, in, in a sense, using the rules of the United Nations to join with Russia, for instance, in vetoing resolutions against uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, uh, in Syria. Um, so I think that um, that uh, that. China has discovered that global governance really, to the degree that it relies strongly on state sovereignty, is something that it can easily live with. Yeah. Uh, let me just elaborate on that because I think it's, it's super, super important. Um, in doing the, the work for uh, the book and my uh, and for other areas of, of global governance research I've been doing, I noticed that the Chinese, when they, um, they feel more comfortable in state-based institutions uh, because China's voice as a state is so large. Uh, and authoritative relative to civil society actors in China, and so um, you, I saw the, I, I saw uh, w- an activity which I called, and I need to be corrected because I need a better word, which I called sovereignize. Their effort to take an issue and push it back into a state-based forum or use state-based type of rules, and I don't know if that's the right thing, but I'll just give you one example. So the Chinese would have uh, in uh, there had been for a long time a uh, uh, the the trade in I- global iron ore trade was done between uh, companies in uh, Japan who were the steel makers and the iron ore providers in Australia and Brazil, and they had they each year had these private dis- negotiations to set the benchmark price for iron ore for that year. Well, the Chinese came along, became the world's largest steel maker, largest consumer of 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 internationally traded iron ore, and started to participate in negotiations. Well. Lo and behold, the Chinese had a big demand for steel, so the price of iron ore kept going up beyond what they wanted to. And so they said, okay, we're going to get our state institutions into this negotiation, and we're going to actually put a lot of pressure on the opponents, uh, diplomatic pressure. And in fact, they ended up arresting part of the the negotiating team as a negotiating ploy (laughs) in 2009. Think of that. And then you you can see this in, 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 in lots of other areas where the Chinese try to get the state back into these institutions. I don't know if sovereign is right because that's probably mischaracterizing what sovereignty means or, or just focusing on one 
part of it. But since I've got the world's leading expert on sovereignty next to me, how how would you see that type of discussion? You no, know, I actually think that um, that actually it's a good it's a good word, um, and uh, and I think that a a really good another good example of that is frankly the debate over what the shape of internet governance should be right because here there has been under um, sort of U.S. U.S. auspices frankly under ICANN um, there's been a um, a, uh, a multi-stakeholder model of internet governance and what you have seen uh, at these conferences of the International Telecommunications Union ITU is a, a number of countries not least China and uh, uh, joined by Russia and uh, and uh, many developing countries but particularly developing countries with a more let's say more authoritarian bent to their governments who really want to take this and 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 make sovereign control of the internet and so you know, a lot of of course um, uh, traditionalists within the uh, um, the community of uh, internet folks say, "Hey, this is going to create splinternet. We're not going to have this, you know, open uh, global internet that remains in free hands and even has a an assessment, excuse me, an assumption of uh, of civil liberties." Um, and uh, but of course, from the the Chinese perspective, uh, internet security doesn't just mean a, a secure infrastructure of the internet. It means that the regime itself is also secure, and 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 that is sovereignizing in a sense uh, yeah, the internet. Right. So serious, we're we're talking about sovereignty in in detail. In in your latest book, you've argued that sovereignty has three key dimensions, uh, authority, autonomy, and influence. And in your view, how well has China balanced these three, which are at times competing considerations, as it has become a larger player within multilateral institutions? And perhaps you could briefly explain what each of those dimensions are within sovereignty for for listeners. Sure. uh, Just for... for, um I think it's helpful um, to break to realize that sovereignty has multiple components, and it can actually be uh, disaggregated. And I think sometimes debates over sovereignty, particularly in the United States, where they get very heated, are often um, so heated precisely because people are, are referring to different aspects of sovereignty. By authority, sovereign author- sovereignty as authority, I basically mean political ind- independence. Does the the country, does the state, actually? Um, is it sort of constitutionally uh, a unit that can um, that, that that rules itself and, and its territory and its inhabitants, or does it like countries of the European Union? Does is there some supranational authority to which it must bow to, at least in part? Um, this the the second component is autonomy or freedom of action. That is, as a practical matter, can the country pursue a foreign policy? Uh, or national security policy the way it would like, or is it in a sense like Gulliver bound by constraints, whether or not it is voluntary, agreed to them or not? And then the third component of sovereignty is what I call sovereignty as influence, which is, is the country able to to help determine its fate as a nation? And that's sort of, you know, effectively, how can the United States or any other country actually realize its preferences or shape its destiny in a global age? And the argument that I make is that increasingly in a global age, uh, we have to spend more time talking about sovereignty as as influence. Um, I think um, what China, China traditionally, uh, certainly early on in particular, was it, it was very um, intent on preserving its sovereignty as independence or, or authority and its sovereignty as autonomy or freedom of action. And I think it's still, like the United States, is very um, uh, very intent on preserving its sovereign independence or sovereign, sovereignty as authority. And, and I think partly that's for uh, obviously historical reasons. Um, uh, in addition to the fact that any country wants to remain independent, but of course, you know the 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 century of humiliation uh, that uh, or century and a half really that uh, that the Chinese speak about, um, dating really from the Opium Wars in terms of 
and, and, and the desire to have territorial integrity and also to make sure that um, Taiwan is recovered as an integral part of, uh, of China. Uh, I think that there is a great reluctance to have any sort of uh, sense of sort of constitutional infringement on those inalienable um, uh, that inalienable authority of the Chinese state. Uh, I think with with respect to autonomy, I think there um, the that China has over time been willing to voluntarily enter into arrangements that may restrict some of its freedom of action a little bit more. And because, of course, that's what treaties are, right? That's what international organizations exist for, is to make sure, is, is to create a, a, a framework of predictability. That doesn't mean all of them deserve to be joined, but it does suggest that if, if there's a way to make um, international interactions more predictable, then that is um, that that is a good thing, and I think what the Chinese have also realized is that by joining international institutions, there's a way in in some ways of reassuring some of their neighbors. For instance, I mean, you know, China, for instance, when it when it talks about or, or it hints at the sort of order it would like to see in East Asia, it's not it's not you know necessarily a sort of a, a more traditional sort of suzerain state system where every you know where other countries in the nearby region are coming to you know. Um, Bow before, um, bow before China, bow before the Chinese emperor. It's it talks about it in the way of let's have a multilateral security arrangement in which which it, it which you know you wouldn't have the United States and its its bilateral uh, alliances there. You would have sort of a common, comprehensive, cooperative security arrangement. And so I see um, China as being over time more willing to give up at least some autonomy still very um, insistent on its uh, its sovereignty as authority uh, but but to be able to again shape its destiny in the region um, to be a little bit more open to um, to to making some compromises on 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 its absolute freedom of action going forward but I'd welcome um, Scott's views as to whether or not he thinks that, that he would share that assessment yeah. um, that that sound that sounds right on the money and, and a super helpful framework uh, to look at the trajectory of China and also how it compares to others I guess two things uh, stand out for me. Uh, one is uh, within China, you have different approaches or, or views about the utility of these institutions. Um, and again, focusing on the area I know best, economics. Uh, lib- uh, Chinese political leaders who wanted to make the economy more marketized to reduce the power of state-owned enterprises wanted to get China into the WTO to have those constraints uh, handcuff what China could do. Uh, in certain respects, to drive the type of domestic economic system they wanted to create and how it would interact with the world. So, for some Chinese, they really wanted to sat. They really wanted to give up a lot because they couldn't, in that political fight domestically, head to head, they couldn't win it unless they had that foreign pressure, what the Japanese call gaiatsu, uh, helping them out. Um, so, I, I think that's uh, one thing. And so, I think different Chinese have are, are willing to to give up. M- uh, more or less, depending on what their domestic political goals are, uh, to some extent. That is that, that that's, that's really fascinating. That because I think that sometimes, as a non-Chinese specialist like myself, you know, you you you, you sometimes overlook the fact that there are competing interest groups yes. that are very much. Even if the even if the domestic political system is so different from our own, and the expressions of where that competition unfolds is not going to necessarily unfold, say in the House of Congress, houses of Congress, or by people lobbying, you know, uh, folks in the legislatures. But it but it it what you're suggesting is that that external pressure is really useful in yes. in 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 helping internal in, in internal battles for some of the people in China. 
I think so. Uh, and the opposite is, is also true. Um, when uh, the United States or Europeans or others seem to walk away from some of their commitments uh, because their sovereignty hawks are pushing hard to protect uh, their authority or control or capacity, uh, then that gives the other side of the conversation in China the, the right to argue back and say, hey, we will be sacrificing our influence internationally relative to the Americans because look 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 what Snowden did. Look at the at the U.S. walking away from Paris and Iran and this and this. If 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 we keep if we f f uh, give up a little bit of our authority uh, because we thought it was in our best interest, but the, but the Americans cheat on that or or don't, then we're at a disadvantage. And so you get that interplay. I don't know if it's a two level game that we're seeing here uh, at at both levels, but it it does suggest that. The, the, uh, that China's interest overall in these institutions and how they participate isn't just an internal conversation. It also is affected by the other players in the system. So there's a, a, a strategic competition or interaction between uh, the leading players. So I want to turn to the future now uh, and, and looking ahead, how worried are you both about challenges to the liberal international order and, and some of the multilateral institutions and norms that we've come to take for, for granted? Stuart, you mentioned outer space earlier. We actually recorded the podcast in November uh, looking at U.S.-China uh, competition in, in outer space and the challenges that exist there and some of the lack of institutional frameworks that are, are in place. So in terms of challenges to multilateral institutions, to global governance, Scott, what are some of the challenges you see coming from China, whether it's the creation of new institutions, whether uh, with a regional or global inclination, and to Stuart from the U.S. and advanced industrialized democracies, uh, what should we be doing to address these challenges as well? You know, I think uh, in, the, in much of the reform era, uh, the Chinese thought the liberal international order in which America provided a lot of leadership was useful for them. Uh, they could uh, integrate into the system, promote their economic reform and development. Um, there was some pressure that they didn't like politically on human rights, et cetera. They didn't like the U.S. support for uh, their, their neighbors in many ways. But on the other hand, that American power in Asia uh, also kept uh, South Korea and Japan from developing nuclear weapons and within the NPT guidelines, I guess. Um, I think the Chinese have lost faith in that liberal international order. Um, particularly under Xi Jinping, and are now trying to uh, rewrite the rules in an illiberal direction. Uh, but at the same time, the United States has lost faith in that order as well. Uh, and so we have this sort of fragmentation and competition, and the U.S. isn't really just holding China's feet to the fire right now. So, I mean, my, my preference would be, and since I work at a think tank, I'm supposed to have policy preferences, my policy <laughs> preference w would be, I mean, I, I, right, is that the U.S. do whatever it can to reform and rebuild and strengthen that liberal international order and try to bring China into it. But if China doesn't want to and we can't get them in, then still, then not wa necessarily wall China off from it, but protect it from the influence that illiberal powers like China and others would have on that system. So that means uh, going back to the rules of the game at the WTO and others. I think uh, Stuart mentioned this earlier. I mean, we spent most of the knots increasing the representativeness of these institutions without dealing with the capacity issues and the rules of these institutions to be able to absorb having so many more actors on the stage. 
Um, I'm, so I think there's those type of ish, uh, work that needs to be done institutionally and sort of normatively. My big areas of, of concern, obviously, are the Internet and anything data-related. Um, I'm worried about public health issues and, and medical issues. I'm worried about uh, inequality. And, and the although we've got great growth now globally, we have inequality getting worse and worse. Uh, and we've seen domestically in the United States that if you don't have inclusive growth, you don't get uh, political consensus uh, for uh, the type of liberal international institutions and globalization that we had before. So I think there's a lot of spade work that we need to do to strengthen these institutions, make room for China if they want to, and we can try to encourage them kindly or with a stick sometimes. But if they're not, then we need to protect those institutions uh, nevertheless. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, hugely worried about the future of the liberal international order, although I have to say that uh, just uh, by way of beginning that um, when I was in um, uh, Beijing a couple of months ago, um, a um, Chinese colleague um, sort of professed to be puzzled because uh, when he heard the phrase liberal international order, he wondered if it had ever been any of those things. Uh, no, <laughs> was it, had it been liberal, uh, not only uh, inconsistently, particularly when it came to sort of protecting U.S. agricultural products, for instance, had it, had it been international, well, it seemed to work pretty well for the OECD world. Uh, and had it created order, well, not in a lot of uh, a lot of the developing world. So it was a it was an interesting critique. But I I do have to say there is a difference, a fundamental difference between the Trump administration and and the attitude that is taken. Uh, purely transactional, no investing in the system. Uh, you know, we used to pursue what the strategist Arnold Wolfers called milieu goals. That is, you, you know, you're not, you're not just interested in, in the art of the deal this particular day or, uh, or, or possession goals, you know, and your relative position to others, but you're actually, uh, you're actually investing in the system. And I think what you have instead with, um, with under Donald Trump is really a sucker's narrative, which is that the United States has basically been getting bloodied and holding the coat for others and, 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 doing all the heavy lifting and now it's time frankly um, to uh, to have Atlas shrug a little bit and uh, and either uh, abdicate <laughs> leadership entirely or see whether or not other, other people want to take it on so I think you have this vacuum of leadership um, that has occurred internationally and the question here is um, is whether or not um, uh, a liberal international order can survive this U.S. abdication. There's been a lot of talk in Europe recently about, hey, is it time to stop being America's doormat? In effect, and and are we capable? You know, as a as a as a group of 28 and soon to be 27, <laughs> come members of the EU of actually uh, going about this. And I think that the G7 really testified uh, to the potential death, in a sense, of the West. Uh, as the core of liberal international order. Uh, I think a, a, a very interesting component of this and troubling one is the virtual silence of the United States under the Trump administration on issues of democracy and human rights. It's ironic this week, um, you know, just, just recently, um, obviously the United States has, has said that it's pulling out of uh, the UN Human Rights Council, which was not entirely surprising given that a number of the critics of the U.S. ever joining, including John Bolton, um, are obviously in positions of power now in the Trump administration. But the, the argument was really made that, well, it, it, it bashes Israel and it doesn't do a good job. It, it, it's a rogue's it, – it's a, it's a den in which uh, uh, you have the, the – basically the, the foxes have taken over the hen house. But that's a little disingenuous, given uh, that the administration has done virtually nothing on human rights, and it's very, you know, that that domestic component of what one calls liberal international order has been pretty consistent uh, over Democratic and Republican administrations over the past several decades, and. Uh, 
I'm sure that uh, the lack of that strong voice is is probably one that is um, is welcomed in China, frankly, given um, given the, uh, the the nature of uh, Xi Jinping's regime and the growing authoritarianism uh, within Beijing. And and in terms of what can be done, you know, I, I think a lot of it really depends on uh, whether or not um, the Current administration's policy is susceptible to sort of reverse or qualification. You know, during George W. Bush administration, there was a certain unilateralism, at least in the first term. But by the second term, there was a return to many uh, international institutions after some of the debris of, uh, of the Iraq War uh, um, episode was sort of wash, uh, began to be sort of um, swept away. I'm not sure that this is going to necessarily come from within this administration, probably because um, this is not a normal Republican administration, uh, or at least conventional one. And so it really depends, I think, going forward as to uh, obviously fortunes of midterms and then the next general election, but also as to whether or not in the low, long term what we're seeing on the international front suggests that this is uh, for the f- foreseeable future, D- Donald Trump's Republican Party, or will other voices in the Republican Party actually come come back out? Will we see this as an interregnum or a weird parentheses uh, between two more normal eras of international uh, internationalism by the United States, or is this really the shape of things to come? And I think it's very difficult to answer that question right now. I'm sure we and folks within the Chinese Communist Party will be watching closely. Scott Stewart, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. Very special thanks to Dr. Stuart Patrick of CFR and Dr. Scott Kennedy for an engaging conversation. You can find information about both books discussed on the pod in the show notes for this episode if you're keen to learn more. On Kajit Asia, you can find written analysis on the future of U.S. forces in Korea by CSIS Senior Vice President Dr. Kathleen Hicks and an article by Jay Nakano and Andrew Stanley of the CSIS Energy and National Security Program that aims to demystify U.S.-China energy trade. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemelingsari. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site to see completely overhauled imagery and the new interface for its world-renowned island tracker. Also, be sure to listen to our latest new podcast series at CSIS, The Impossible State, which covers all things North Korea, featuring Victor Cha, Sumi Terry, and Michael Green. I'm Liza Keller. Thanks for listening.